0: Welcome back to the show. Today we have Rick Ralston. He's the CEO at Contract Logics. Rick, welcome to the
1: show. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Contract Logics is actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
1: Okay, great. Kind of a long story, but uh, I grew up in a a small farm town in in central Illinois. Okay. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a lot to do there, but the uh, the petroleum industry was fairly hot in addition to farming. And so I went to school, got a degree in petroleum technology, and uh, moved out to Oklahoma and spent 10 years working for an oil and gas pipeline. And we I learned all kinds of stuff. Uh, worked in an engineering group there. We would literally walk a thousand miles of pipeline and and gather all kinds of, of data on the pipeline. And back in the early 80s, it was challenging to, to do that. We would carry uh, these massive, uh, what we call laptop computers, but they, they weighed a ton. And uh, we'd carry them into a hotel at night and download all this data, uh, running lots and lots of, of reports and analysis on it uh, at night and cranking out on dot matrix printers and. Uh, Wow. we learned learned a lot about what not to do when it comes to analyzing data but did that for 10 years and and then got recruited by a a larger larger pipeline company and ended up in a management position and wanted to uh, wanted to deal with people so i didn't know a lot about working with people so i went back to school got another degree in human resource management thought that would help and and I did apply a lot of of what I learned, uh, but pretty soon some friends came to me and and wanted to start up a, an internet company. Okay. And I told them not to worry about that. I told them the internet was a fad, and and they should keep <laughs> they should keep their day job, you know. <clears throat> but we did. Uh, we we started up a business that was a price comparison search engine, and again we started. And then we were a whole bunch of uh, pipeline engineers, and we we just tried to apply what we already knew, which was gathering lots and lots of of data. And this time we were gathering it from online commerce companies, and we were doing all kinds of data extraction back before natural language processing or AI was was cool. And we'd aggregate that data and then dis- display results. And next thing you know. Uh, there we are running a, an internet software company, and in the late 1990s, and and that's kind of how the whole entrepreneurial and and software thing got started for me.
0: Interesting. So, did you exit out that company, or what happened to that to that company?
1: We we did actually. Yeah, we had uh, it was super hot time, as you can imagine, right before yeah. the, the dot com crash, and and we got all kinds of interest and. Hired a big investment banker and out on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, and, and had a had an exit. And then from that, uh, several of us went on and, and started up a variety of other companies. And I've just been kind of doing that ever since.
0: Very cool. So, walk us through your journey up until becoming CEO of uh, Contract Logics.
1: Okay. Um, So it's kind of one software company after another, and one of them was a a pharmacy software company, and we started uh, gathering data again. It was the back-end prescription filling software, and we had all of this de-identified data on patient data, and we found a, a way to aggregate that and market it to very large pharma companies so that they could analyze certain trends in the marketplace around different drugs, and then we created a pharmacy benefits management solution from that. <clears throat> and I started getting hit up by entrepreneurs asking me, hey, how do, you, how do you start up a business? How do I grow my business? How do I raise capital? How do I sell my company? Stuff like that. And a and, uh, company I got affiliated with up in, in, in New England, in Boston, where we are now, uh, was looking to exit their company. So I took a board seat. Helped them get their strategies in place and started realizing I was spending more and more of my time working with private equity groups and venture capitalists and investment bankers. So I went back to school again and got an MBA. Wow. And tried to apply that knowledge. And you know, one, one business after another, we we were able to, to exit that company, sold it to a company over in, in London and started doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions for them around the globe. We ended up with offices in about a hundred different countries. And that was a, that was a really fast paced growth business. It was marketing and marketing technology. And, and so we started looking to acquire other companies, usually in the healthcare technology, kind of like the pharmacy business. and Right. And back in 2010, a group of us started looking at contract logics and and we had done a few other acquisitions and and grown the companies and turned them around, raised a little money at times and and had some successful exits there and, and Some of them are doing incredibly well and so we had looked at contract logics and then in two thousand and twelve, uh, the current shareholder group acquired contract logics, and you know we haven't looked back it's been it's been going great
0: interesting so Walk us through how you became CEO and what exactly does Contract Logics do?
1: Okay, yeah. Uh, CEO kind of means a different thing in a lot of different companies, and sure. in small companies, it usually means that you you've got to be able to market and sell, and whether it's recruiting new staff or or going out and trying to land you know a large customer, or selling the vision of the company internally or to your shareholders, so you can really advance and, and push the company in the direction it needs to go. So there's a lot of selling going on, but to become the CEO in a company like ours, it's, it's really, it's more about learning the, the people, learning the organization and identifying what is the culture that you need to have, and, and then making sure that you've got not only the right people, but you've got them in the right roles and that they're in roles where they're really motivated to be. Uh, and, and once you start kind of, Figuring out how to deal with the team, they tend to drive the vision and identify where they want to go. And uh, to me, that's what being a CEO is about. It's 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 not about all the metrics and and everything, the the accounting and the legal. I mean, that's part of it, but it's really about the team and and figuring out how to how to keep people really engaged and let them drive that vision of where you want to go. And and at Contract Logics, uh, again, we focus a lot on data Uh, but in this case we're talking about legal data so every company has contracts within their business Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a small company or a large company and sometimes in small companies our contracts are even much more important to them than in large and so so we we work with people to in our software works with people to help them set up clauses and template libraries so that they're using standard language uh, we also work with them to create workflows in their system. So if they have to go for reviews and approvals, the software will automatically route those. So there, there's a, a variety of technologies that we use uh, to really help optimize the efficiency of the contract flow within an organization. Uh, and it it's come it's a long way over the last 10 years.
0: Sure. So... I guess, for people that maybe don't really understand how important that is, do you want to give us some examples of how people use your system to facilitate some of this stuff?
1: Sure. Sure. You know, there's a full life cycle and and there's different companies offer products throughout the life cycle of a contract. Our particular product covers the entire life cycle, so we'll kind of start at the beginning. You imagine having a a, uh, a sales team, and you've got 20 salespeople out across the country, and you want to make sure not only do they have an efficient process for getting contracts signed, but that they have uh, certain language locked down so they know it's not uh, it's not negotiable. And and so we have contract software that allows you to set up certain clauses that are that are never editable, and and they can. Uh, implement those throughout their sales process incredibly quick. Uh, Another thing that they can do is we have a collaboration room that allows them in the negotiation of the contract to open up in a browser uh, without any uh, authentication. If they choose to, they can send this to a prospect, uh, send a link in an email automatically goes to them in an email. They open this up in a browser and they can redline and edit and comment in real time. Uh, track changes, everything is going on in real time, and you're collaborating back and forth with the the prospect uh, right through the software.
0: Very cool. No, that's that's cool. So obviously you guys have some well-known clients using the thing, and you guys have been around for a number of years. How do you decide what features... To add, or maybe not add, because you probably get that request all the time, and I find that can be one of the most challenging things, especially when you're an established company with established clients.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I know you're a UI UX guy, so what you just said is is really spot on. I mean, it's many times deciding what you can't or don't want to add, rather than than sure. what people are asking. Uh, so so we're like you know like a lot of software companies, we've got good product management where we're really talking to the customers all the time. We've got a great customer success team that gives us a lot of feedback uh, on what customers are needing, what they're using. But we also have detailed user metrics built into the software that are telling us how many workflows, how many clauses and templates are being triggered at any time. and so so you can really you can see what pieces of the software are being used. But another thing that we do, and, and we, we think we've kind of honed this as a best practice now, is, is how we handle our win loss surveys. Whether it's a one prospect or a lost prospect, uh, uh, or even a lost customer, uh, we go back into them with a detailed set of questions based on the relationship that we built to learn as much about not only the experience that they had or have had, especially around onboarding the software. But if they are a lost customer where they went and why they went there and we get some of the best feedback about what features we need to have but, but the balance becomes not just the features that we want to have on on where we're going as a vision so that we're always enhancing the the product and the product direction but also that balance between making sure that customers are, are getting the functionality that they need individually. Not all pieces of contract management are applicable across the spectrum of industries. We work across highly regulated industries. It might be energy or healthcare or or pharmaceuticals. This last year, we did a lot of work in renewable energy, wind and and solar, and they have certain requirements that pharma doesn't and vice versa. And and so we really have to, to balance uh, the direction of our our company as well as what those individual customers need interesting so
0: just to be clear then if i'm a company and i'm using you guys do i upload my own documents or do can i start with a template from you guys or how does that work
1: it's, it's actually both so most okay. people already have existing contracts and and we do have a very robust api Uh, that allows people to to interact with other pieces of software. However, our system ends up being the system of record. So all of the documents eventually do end up in our repository where you can do analytics against those. But you can also set up new contracts with templates. So imagine a contract might have 20 paragraphs in it, and we break those up into individual clauses. And then you can simply drag and drop those clauses around wherever you want them in in your template then any of your people that are negotiating, just call up that particular template. And then they're off and running, creating new contracts. For existing contracts, we just upload them into the repository. They're all robustly organized based on a a whole series of metadata that goes along with the contract. And and you now have this, this super easy way to go sort by Uh, Contracts or by organizations we could do really robust keyword search against that We also do data extraction that pulls out certain key elements to allow you to go in and look inside those contracts and Kind of evaluate which ones have which clauses and 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 help you kind of rank and order uh, The different contracts that you have
0: No, that's that's very cool. And then how do you handle permissions? so for example if I work at a company and I signed a bunch of contracts, for example, because I'm on the sales side, and then I move on from the company. How does those documents make sure they stay with the company and not me?
1: Yeah, so we'll have it kind of set up in two different areas. One is real, I'll talk about security, and then the other is gonna be kind of roles-based or features-based permissioning. So from a security standpoint, we we have a, a wide variety of security technologies that we run. Uh, we're HIPAA compliant, FISMA compliant. We have SOC 2, Type 2 audits on all of our application. Uh, but we also have uh, some data loss prevention built into the system. So when people are downloading, that's all being tracked so we can monitor anything like that. But the permissions is really probably one of the more robust pieces of our technology. And, and the first stuff that we ever built when we were building this out so if you can imagine any component, any feature of the system that you you have, we can set that up with roles-based security around it. So that particular individual, and you can do it at a user level, they might have certain roles, but they can also have certain features within the system that they would have access or not have access to. So any customer can go in and define their roles and what the permissions are associated with those roles. And, and it is unlimited how how, Uh, tight they can they can make the software if they choose to
0: interesting no i i think that's that's one of the probably the most important things right at at some point and and having those controls at a specific user level is is very much needed and and cool that you guys support that
1: yeah then uh, the the question that 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 you asked to to specifically you know if somebody left we also use uh we're integrated with a lot of different single sign-on company, so pretty much any single sign-on tool that a corporation is using uh, we integrate with so they can have total control over all of their users. So you might have five hundred people in your company managing contracts throughout the entire life cycle. It might be your procurement team, your legal team, your sales all the way up and down the the organization and and using single sign-on allows them to immediately start up or kill access and And we can even do that according to the user, not only the user, but according to their role as well.
0: Got you, okay, very cool. And then as a customer, what type of analytics do I get?
1: Well, there's a a lot of out of the box stuff starts to tell you the different types of contracts that you have, uh, frequencies, uh, how often you're signing new contracts, what's the life cycle of a contract in between phases, one of the pieces of analytics that I, I find to be the most valuable and I've heard really positive feedback from as well is the workflow. We have progress bars that will show you how long it's taking to get a contract through your company. So for instance, if, if you're in legal and, and you're waiting for your sales team to send things, the workflow is telling you how long did it sit in creation before it, it got out to the prospect. And then once it gets back from the prospect, and now it's going through legal review, it's also telling you how long it sits in each stage. So those are really good analytics for people to evaluate. Uh, another one, and this, this is what I use probably more than anything myself, and that's using the keyword analytics that are built in, where we can go out and do keyword searches and bring back in grids worth of, of contracts. You might, you might have a thousand contracts and you can go in and search for, say maybe you, uh, you need to know uh, do you have the consent language for assignability? And you could go in and do searches on certain keywords and it'll come back and you can then sort that data by state or contract type or customer type or uh, how much revenue that contract was generating. You can you can sort it by all kinds of stuff. And that's a really great tool for people to go in and, and learn more about their existing contracts.
0: No, I, I think that's that's really cool. So. I'm curious, because obviously this space is probably just going to move even more online. Do you have any predictions or thoughts around the future of contract management or or maybe some predictions? Or, or where do you think we're going to go next?
1: Yeah, I do. Everybody, everybody's got predictions, I think, on this particular space. It's an incredibly hot space. There's been a tremendous amount of, of capital pushed into the space, some really, really large acquisitions every company needs to be able to manage their contracts and you don't want to do it. in in the, you know, the old fashioned tools, like we all, we all use SharePoint, Excel, Word, and things like that. And they're great tools, but you need to be working in a much more organized fashion. And, and so we've seen, uh, we were one of the early companies, our company was founded in 2005, 2006. And the first product went out and there's a lot out there today. There's a couple hundred at the time there were maybe less than a dozen or handful or so, but, now there's a couple hundred different vendors that offer contract management, and, and I, I see the, the direction in a couple of different ways. One, one is some of the tools that we're doing around data extraction, natural language processing, and and some AI, where you're you're automatically sorting and and aggregating the risks of your contracts, and that that's an area that I think we've got some strengths. I also think that's kind of a good direction for every company go because there's not only does every company have contracts every company's got risk inside their contracts and they need to know what those risks are but another direction i think we're going to see is and this is true across all software as a service businesses i think we're going to start to see some some uh, uh, kind of changes in the the philosophy of best of breed versus best of class versus best of show and i Uh, We have a very robust API that allows us to integrate with CRMs and and ERPs and and a variety of things. But we do want to be that system of record for where your contracts are stored. And I think we'll continue to see an aggregation of the software as a service products across that full spectrum of contract management to where you're having a single source for all of your legal agreements instead of having them scattered around between your ERP or CRM or different things. And and I think as we see that, these APIs are going to be more and more critical that they all communicate very effectively and elegantly so that when you're looking for a piece of data, it's, it's right where you need it to be. It's in the right hands. It's, it's highly secure. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's getting to the right people at the right time. And, and I really think that we're going to see more and more of these full lifecycle tools that go beginning to end trying to aggregate across the entire spectrum of the contract.
0: Interesting. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So you've mentioned it throughout the show so far, and I, I'm curious, and, and I'm, I'm sure other people are curious too, but you guys get a bunch of data why is data so important and, and what advice do you give to companies that are maybe just starting out or have been around for a while that don't collect data or don't have that much
1: data? We do. We do believe that we differentiate based on how we manage our data compared to the alternatives in the market. And it goes way back. You know, I mentioned that back in my early days when I was pipeline and we started analyzing the data and, and we would gather, you know, Petabytes worth of data, and you had you couldn't just look at that. You know, you have to have tools that will analyze that. And then the same was true in the healthcare industry when I got into pharmacy, and and so we've been approaching the contract business in the exact same way. So when we architected our products, we did it in such a way that not only can we gather the metadata around the contract, things like you know when it was created, who created it, who were all the review reviewers, even the amendments and the red line additions throughout the negotiation. So all the metadata, but also so that we have we have extraction tools that will allow us to go pour into the, the contract itself and identify these key risks. And then what's most important to us is to be able to de-identify and aggregate across a lot of different data sets and and pull out kind of cohorts of data to say, hey, when when companies are using language, around indemnification, what is the best practice? And then how do we ensure that our contracts are applying that and then which ones that aren't are ranked highly to go in and either renegotiate or maybe change insurance requirements and and so forth. So it's incredibly important to be able to analyze the contract. And the only way to do that is to ensure that you have a robust data set to work off of.
0: Sure. Well, and the other thing too, And I know you can kind of skew data to how you want it to be. But in a lot of cases, if you're truly looking at it objectively, the data doesn't lie. And it can really make hard decisions. Uh, Like it can give you the answers to some of those hard decisions and and where to go take your product or where to maybe transition your product to or what new features to add. Fair.
1: Um, it is fair. And there was a time when we didn't have a lot of user metric usage metrics in our system. And, and so we would, um, we, we, we would work off of, I don't want to say gut feel, but you would work off of anecdotal information, right? So you'd be sitting around and somebody in our success team would say, Hey, I was, I was talking to to Sally over at such and such a company. and And they pointed out that they really need this. Well, depending on how good a presenter that particular individual is, they might get higher or lower ranking just because they made a compelling case. And without, without data, that's easy to do. Yeah. And so you may have the most brilliant team member in the world, but if they aren't that effective at communication, then their points never rise to the top. And and so once we started getting a, a lot of, use each metric so we can tell you all the different customers and all the different users that are touching different parts that's when we started to really understand not just how they were using it but which areas we should focus on and which areas we should talk to them more about so we know that they have you know 150 users in this particular subset of the the software we want to go talk to them about their use cases how they're using it what what's working what are the strengths and the weaknesses of that area but also identifying sections of our software where there is limited usage or maybe no usage and find out why not. Uh, The worst thing a developer can ever have happen to them is is to really pour your your heart and soul into building something really cool and innovative and then never have any customer adoption on them. It just, it's gut wrenching when you realize that people just don't want to use it. And so we dig in a lot to our usage metrics where we where we don't have usage
0: no make makes a lot of sense and what advice do you give people to use data to actually help them get their product to market
1: uh my 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 advice i I get the chance to work with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and startups and my advice is always pretty much the the same to start the conversation off i ask them about their customers i ask them who they are what are they what are they buying your product for? Do you do you know? Are they willing to to give you money for for your software? You know how how serious have you had a discussion with your customer? And once you start talking to those customers about what they're using, why they're using it, you know, what their use case is, and you build that relationship, then then you have something to really start basing your business on. You know, you're not. It's not just you're trying to solve a problem but you're doing it from the eyes of the customer. What is the customer's problem that they're trying to solve? And then once you dig in at that level, you, you can then start kind of not only building the tools, but you can start aggregating that data from each of those interactions to see well, which pieces are working and which pieces aren't.
0: Interesting. You brought up a point that I want to reiterate because I feel like it gets lost so much in the startup space is like you and I could create a new company right now and it doesn't matter what it does, but we can get so in the weeds about like our opinions and, and what we think is good, bad. The other it doesn't really matter, but what really matters is solving a product or a problem, sorry, for your customer and, and their customer as well. Right. And so many times we get caught in this, like, well, I don't like this or I don't like that. It's like, well, but if your customer likes it and their customer likes it, it doesn't really matter if you or I like it if it's solving a problem for the people we're actually targeting with the product
1: that's exactly right Kevin and I and I that' I'll, I'll hone in on that word you just said on the the target the target customer so we get distracted many times when when somebody will a customer will tell us or a prospect will tell us that they they're really Uh, They either don't like our system or they were talking to somebody else and their system does X, Y, Z. It's important to make sure that you focus on your target market. Many times we'll get distracted and we'll start building something kind of off center from where our vision is because we lose sight of who that target is. And it's pretty easy to do in contract management because there's so many different directions that you could go. So we don't just want to listen to the customer. Of course we do. But we want to make sure we're listening to the target customer as well so that we know that the feedback we're getting is going to actually take us down the road that that we want to be able to go with the company and not derail us and end up. And and many times through that process, you, you lose deals because you have to start being selective. Early on as an entrepreneur, you have to take every deal you can possibly get. Just say yes to everything. But as, as you start getting some market share, you have to start being very selective, identify your niche, and then just really, really stay steadfast focused on that niche to make sure that you're you're adding the greatest value you can to that target market.
0: No, that that's actually really good advice because it can be really, really challenging to actually execute on that and convince, well, I know you're the CEO, but it, it, there's a lot of, CEOs or or upper management that don't have that mindset and it can be so frustrating at times to actually overcome that right and it's cool that you have that mindset and you understand
1: that well it's easier to say than do you know people bring me deals all the time and i'll look at them and i'll say hey we got to do this deal you know because we want every deal we can get And, and you have to stay disciplined so i'm just as bad as everybody else uh, when it comes to to getting off track, especially around product development, you know, there's things that we, we like to eat our own dog food. So I, I use our software, lots of people in our company use our software to, to run our business. And there's things that I want in there. And I'll go to our product team and they they think, oh, because I'm the CEO, they should go do that. But they shouldn't. Cause I'm not really a target demographic. I am a customer. I'm just a user and they, they need to aggregate that data and make really sound decisions on it. But I'm just as guilty as everybody else when it comes to, to getting us off track.
0: Interesting. And uh, it's, it's interesting that you're open to admit that, right? Because you're right. It happens all the time. And the fact that you're open to that pushback as well to say like, you know what? Yes, that makes sense in your use case, but for the actual product and our target market, it doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and while I like to believe that I know our customers really well, uh, our team knows our customers really well. They're on the front lines. They work with them all day, every day. And and I I need to be listening to what they're telling me. And and why I do talk to customers a lot, and and I love it. And but I'm not there all day, every day the way they are.
0: Sure. No, that that makes a lot of sense. So. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you you mentioned you work with a lot of entrepreneurs and startups. Is there stuff that you see happening all the time or stuff that you get asked all the time that you maybe want to either like clarify or demystify a little bit for for startups and entrepreneurs listening to the show?
1: Sure. The, the, The most common question that I get, and it comes in two or three different forms, but it's around should I raise money or how much money should I raise or when is the right time to raise money? But those are, and and I've interviewed hundreds. I I don't, I don't keep track, but I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of of entrepreneurs and do a lot of business plan work and, and competitions and judging and startups and all kinds of stuff. And that is the most common thread. And not just with startups, but with companies that have made it through a seed round or even a first round, and now they're trying to still make that next decision, is it time to to raise again? And depending on where your phase is in that entrepreneurship journey, the answer is different. Uh, But once you get past that kind of early stage and your friends and family and your seed, uh, my advice to entrepreneurs is, is to really make sure that you have a scalable business, a scalable business model, Uh, one that you can replicate over and over again. The the reason comes back to the risks for the investors. So early on, before you've proven your business, the risk to the investors is very high. And to the entrepreneur, they're going to be giving up more and more equity because of that. So the further down your journey you can get before you raise money, the more equity you'll be able to preserve. I'm I'm a big fan of bootstrapping until you can get a product to market, kind of get that minimal viable product out there, make sure that you've got customers that are very interested and willing to part with their money for your product. But once, once you start getting to market, the risk to the investor starts to go down because now you've proven something and you're able to preserve more of that equity. And if you can really prove that it's a scalable market, that's when it's time to start looking at, you know, should I be putting money behind this, whether it's my technology or, or behind my marketing? And, and that's, that's what I try to, that's what I hear from most people. And that's what I try to deal with myself and our company is when's the best time to raise and uh, what is the right amount to raise? And th- those are tough questions to answer and they vary a lot from one company to the next, but th- that's the most frequent thing that I, I hear.
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you. The more equity you can keep, for the longest amount of time, the better off you're, you're potentially going to be in the long term. I also kind of believe that sometimes like it's better to own 5% of something than 100% of nothing, right? So it, it's a weird balance, right?
1: No, that's that's exactly right, Kevin. And I think there's a market dynamic there. So if I'm in an incredibly slow market that's very mature, well, I'd rather own a lot more of it. But if I'm sure. in a fast growing market that is just taking off, well, you you don't need to be slowing down, you need to be moving fast. And that's, that's when, you know, for, forget the equity piece, get on, the get on the bandwagon, get the money and, and build the business. And I, I was, I was talking with a, a, a startup here recently just went through Y Combinator and she was telling me that they were starting to, to get a lot of feedback from people. And I, I just love the product that they built. And she was struggling with the exact same thing was how much and when and uh, Based on what information I had, I said, well, it's now and go big or go home because your competition's going to get tough when they start seeing what you're doing. And, and that's a rare thing to be able to say to somebody. But in their case, they, they had pretty much nailed how they were going to scale their business and they were ready to go.
0: No, I, I think that's really good advice because you're right. There's no like playbook for this stuff and there's no like If you follow this path, you're going to get this outcome. It's really a case-by-case basis. It's where you're at. It's kind of how technical you are or not, what your team's like, maybe where you're geographically located, depending on what type of business you're doing. I think, and well, I'm curious, I think being geographically located doesn't really matter for a lot of SaaS businesses uh, anymore. It might help if you're in certain areas of, of the globe but what is your thoughts on being located geographically?
1: Yeah, there's a few different angles to, to consider. I mean, one is, is it an enterprise level product that was going to require face-to-face interaction sure. with customers? And if so, you want to be in that area. But most most products, today, even at the enterprise level, you don't have to have face-to-face interaction. But another one is recruiting. You know, you yeah. want to be able to acquire talent and you, you, you want to make sure that you can have a good pool to acquire from. One of the things that we've learned over the last year is how valuable our software is to our customers now that most people are working in a remote environment. They needed a SaaS product. Uh, So that worked out really great for us, but I think that's also going to to further change the dynamic in favor of SaaS companies because so many people, not only today, but probably in the future, are gonna continue to be remote. And so it's easier for companies like ours to go recruit because of that. Although we still like to have that that core uh face-to-face interaction where we can have these kind of impromptu collisions of ideas across the team but i think there's going to be more and more of, of the re- the remote businesses that are out there and SaaS is a really great fit for that
0: no i i agree i'm curious then okay so you're you'll have your employees return at least part-time to the office or or what does that look like for you guys
1: a great question. We had an all hands meeting last week and had several people ask me the exact same thing. And I, I wish I had an answer for you. Uh, Massachusetts was one of the harder hit and, and we're just north of Boston out in the suburbs there in Lowell. And it was one of the harder hit states, but it was also one of the earlier hit states. And, right. and so the precautions went into to affect much sooner. And now they're starting to kind of roll out. We went through four phases and we're in phase four and there's like five steps and we're in the first step of phase four for the state. And I do think that over the next two months, so this is uh, mid April, so we're probably talking the end of June, June-ish maybe, uh, we'll start seeing companies start to re-enter. In our case, we're probably gonna do a few different things. One, we'll, we'll go back and forth with different groups on different days just to get that collaboration going we've been working remotely for years and our our teams all we we have we do everything remote we we have used zoom for voice over ip and for video conferencing for a number of years we've tried slack we've we've got all kinds of tools that we use Uh, so it's not a big deal for us to be remote but i i do think that sometimes end of June, 1st of July, we'll start seeing a few people trickling back in to set up some team meetings and things like that. But uh, we'll probably never be back to where we were. That's I think that's for sure.
0: Interesting. I'm curious to know, you mentioned a couple of tools, any other tools you recommend for remote work?
1: Well, I don't know that these are specific to remote work, but we, okay. we use, we use Jira for everything. We set up a wide right. variety of, of workflows for people. We do use zoom for all kinds of stuff. Um, let's see what else. Um, uh, I don't know, I've, I've even, Oh, another one we use and and, uh, we use our CRM, we use HubSpot. We, we use it right. for all, all kinds of stuff. And, and between those, and then our own API integrations that we built with our own product, we're pretty much set, but, uh, it, it there's a lot of different tools out there that really work great. I'll tell you, one of the things that our team has, has set up recently, they set up a bunch of new unique cha- channels uh, within our, our video conferencing to allow real-time collaboration. So it's not just individual to individual. These channels really get some great sat- chat sessions in there, specifically around our product. <laughs> Well, we were talking a minute ago i had to reach over and actually close a bunch of stuff out because there was a big conversation about our product going on and how some of the functionality works and i just love seeing that happening uh, so having specific channels to different topics i think is, is also a great and you can do that in jira as well so it, it's a it tech it's hard to live without technology nowadays isn't it
0: yeah no that's that makes sense uh, that's interesting And I I actually think it's really good advice. And I I think the fact that you are open to figuring out the future of kind of a hybrid model, in-person, remote work, um, is where most companies, if not all companies, need to be at some point, right?
1: Yeah, and I've had the the opportunity to work globally now for, well, over 30 years, I think, is when I first started taking on some global roles. And there was a period for about three or four years where I was pretty much traveling every week somewhere. And if you think about it, if you're in a global role, you're always working remote. I mean, no matter where you're going, even when you're in your own office, it seems remote compared to everything else. And that's kind of the way our world is, especially if you're a SaaS company, we have, you know, we have customers all over the world. Uh, So, you know, we're, we're, we just, it's just part of who we are now. And, and, and I like it. I think it's from a software standpoint, that's, That's the business we're in is allowing people to collaborate and work better together no matter where they are. Yeah.
0: Well, and I also think it opens up a whole new market to SaaS companies too, right? Like so many people are focused on, oh, we need to make it in North America. And it's like, yeah, you probably do. Maybe you do. But if your first success is in another country, then there's nothing wrong with that. And in in some cases, like maybe you're, you never are successful in North America, but the rest of the world is using your product just you could be just as successful right
1: right you know to scale the business you really need to architect it as if you were going to be someplace else so i would challenge people to think that you know think you're in a different country with different languages and different currency and architect it appropriately so that when you do scale you you can bring that in so many people will design something and and in the north america or maybe even in the uk or in australia or something that is very english speaking and next thing you know they don't know how to scale or they have to take a step back and raise a lot of money to be able to get beyond that existing geographical market so there are some architectural considerations that people could take right up front that could make a big difference on their ability to move later on
0: no i think that's really good advice but we're kind of coming to the end of the show so, how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and contract logics?
1: Sure. Well, Kevin, thanks for thanks for having me on. Um, I always send people to our own website. We've got that uh, at We've got a just a real depth of information on there on contract management. We have lots of, of white papers. Uh, We have lots of eBooks, there's all kinds of articles that we've written about contract management, how to do, how to get started in contract management, all the way down to the details of how to set up workflows and and everything else. So uh, you can visit our blog there, but we also have lots of articles as well at contractlogics.net.com.
0: Perfect, Rick. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day.
1: Thanks, Kevin. You too. Thank you. Okay.
0: Bye. Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley, for full past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com.